All right. Um, we are in Hebrews. <coughs> chapter 2. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and grab, grab that out. Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews 2, starting at verse 5. Kayla, yes. you want to read? Sure. You can be my reader. Okay. <coughs> 2 5. So, um, heavy stuff tonight. Big, big topics. Big, big things that, that the, the author is going to be kind of introducing to us and continuing his, his, um, his encouragement, his challenge, his, his argument, if you will, um, with, with those who are looking to turn from Jesus to go back to the Jewish system so that their life can be back to some sort of normalcy so they can stop being persecuted so they can, right? So they're wanting to turn from Jesus and he's saying, listen, you don't want to do that. Um, he spent all of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2 convincing them that, listen, Jesus is God, he, and He's more superior than angels. And if you think in the Old Testament people should have listened to and, 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 and followed the directions of the angels when, when they came and spoke because they're speaking on behalf of God, if you think that their messages were important, how much more is Jesus' message of salvation? So don't turn from it. Don't ignore it. He's King. He's God. Don't do it. So, so he, the author moves from that big idea into moving into, he transitions to a new idea here in these verses. And so I want to get, get to that. But before I do that, I want to, I want to pray. So let's, let's pray. Jesus, we um, just want to stop and acknowledge that you are king, that you reign supreme over everything, um, and that it is by your grace, your, your sacrifice, your death on the cross for us, um, and your conquering of death in us so that we can have life in you. God, it is, Jesus, it is because of that that we can come to the Father, that we can have a relationship with, with you, that we can... Um, find peace, and that we can trust. And so, God, you are worthy of our praise and our, and our worship. So, God, I pray that tonight as we dive into your word, that you would speak clearly to us. You would help us see you more clearly and, and, and help us understand even um, greater depths what you've done for us. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so, uh, like I said, he flows from, so, like Drew said at the beginning, the, the author is, is a little, it's probably more of a, of a preacher um, flowing from one thought to the other, and he does a masterful job of this, and so he continues this theme. Uh, he kind of continues what he started at the end of one with this idea that Jesus is, is, has all things in, in subjection under him, has all things under his feet. God has put all things under Jesus' feet. He continues that theme in verse 5. So, Kayla, would you read 2-5? It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. Okay. There's a Nope, that's good. That's good. No, that's good. So, he, he uses this word subjected. It's a, it's, a, it's a common New Testament word. 
hypotasso. Um, it's it's this, uh, this idea of, of putting under or submitting. This is a, uh, for Christian, this is a, a big word. And, and so not only, it, many times throughout, throughout the New Testament, this word submit is in reference to how Christians are called to submit to authorities, to each other. Um, all these things, to God, obviously. But, but the New Testament would conclude that everything is going to be in submission to Christ. That everything will be in sub, subjected to and under, put under the rule and the reign of Jesus. And it seems to say that either that will happen out of a response of love because of what he's done for us, or it'll happen out of desperate fear for, for recognizing who he is. Like, the Jesus of the New Testament is not this really, is not only this, this super nice guy that likes to hang out with children, okay? Um, he is, he is, especially if you read through Revelation, he is conquering king, and he's come to rule and to reign. And so everything will be put and subject in him. So he says, it's not to angels that God subjected the world to come. And, and there's this, then who? And it's Jesus. But how he gets there is pretty interesting. He, he uses this Psalm 8. Okay, So turn to Psalm 8. Keep your finger in Hebrews uh, chapter 2. Turn to Psalm 8. Because I, I want you to see what he's doing. He skillfully um, uses Psalm 8 to, to, to build his point that not only is Jesus um, uniquely divine, but he's also uniquely human as well. And we need him to be that. And we'll see that here in a second. But before we read, before I read uh, Psalm 8, I want to give the backdrop to Psalm 8. So the backdrop to Psalm 8 is actually Genesis 1. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to read it to you because uh, you'll be familiar with it. Uh, but when, when God created, in 127, it says that God created male and female in his image. And then 128 says this, And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, which literally means to bring into bondage. Bring into bondage. Subdue it and have dominion or rule over it, over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And, and God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with, with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on, on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it says, and so it was. So who is he talking about? God's saying that to who? To humanity, to, to, to Adam and Eve, okay? So that's the backdrop of Psalm 8. So let's read um, Psalm 8. David, the psalmist says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, lost my place. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over, over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, 
and also the beasts of the fields, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So who is the psalmist talking about? When he says, what is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him, you made him a little lower. Who's the him? Nope. No, who's the psalmist talking about? What? Man, yeah, humanity. That's who the psalmist is talking about. Here's what the psalmist is saying. He's saying, when I see your amazing, wonderful, beautiful creation, and, and I see all those things that, that I marvel at, and then I think, wait a minute, you care for me. Like, you made me in your image. We're the only ones that are made in his image. We're the only ones that are given the, the, the command to rule and to reign, to, to have dominion over. Angels aren't given that. None of, none of the rest of creation is given that. Just, just we are. And so, so this David, the psalmist, is just marveling at the relationship that we have with God that none of the rest of creation, including angels, has. And he concludes with, how majestic is your name? He, 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 David, David, re, David's realization of our elevated place in creation causes him to worship God. It doesn't cause him to go, wow, we're awesome. We're amazing. It causes him to worship God because he's recognizing who all this is coming from. Like, we didn't have to be placed at this elevated place in creation. And yet God put us there by his own grace and his own goodness. So that's, that's Psalm 8. Okay, So let's go back to Hebrews chapter 2. So the, the author uses Psalm 8, man's elevated, dignified place in, 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 in the earth, in creation, as a launching pad to show how much more elevated and amazing Jesus is. And that's where he's going. So um, read 6 through 8, Kayla. Okay, so some of you, NIV uses the word them, and, and, and uh, ESV uses the word him, uh, all throughout 6 and 8. And, and here's what I'm arguing for, and, and, and not all the commentaries agree with me on this. A couple do, and one didn't, okay? So I'm a little, I was a little nervous when I realized that, and I go, no, I, I, this is what I think is happening. But I believe this, the him that he's referring to in 6 through 8 is humanity. And, and for three reasons, I believe this. One is that I believe he's reiterating what, Paul, what, what Psalm 8 just said. In verse 8, um, he said, Now, in putting everything in subject to him, he left nothing outside of his control. So I think he's just reiterating what Psalm 8 just claimed, that when God created man and, and woman, he made everything subject under him. That was, the, that was the original intent. But then he says, this is my second reason, he says, yet presently, man is not how he is intended. Presently, we don't see man having rule and reign, having dominion over, having everything subjected under him. We don't see that. And then the third reason 
is ultimately actually let, let me read this quote from 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 one one scholar that said this originally man was created with with these four things supreme favor special privilege unique dignity and unrivaled dominion he says but presently this is what we this is not how we see man from our observations we see him as despising god's favor abusing his privileges ignoring his dignity and through sin limiting his in, limited in his his dominion and he says this man is certainly not as he should be so presently man is not the way he was intended and then verse 3 or my third reason is verse 9 which is go ahead and read Caleb So he says, we, we don't, in verse 8, he concludes, this is what man was intended, but we don't see man doing that. But we see him. The new him in verse 9 is who? <coughs> Jesus. It's the first time his name is actually mentioned in Hebrews. Is Jesus, he says. He says, we see Jesus now. Now he um, was, was made a little lower than the angels temporarily. We, we, we just heard a bunch that he's, that he's superior to the angels, but he was made a little lower than the angels, and he's also crowned with glory and honor. Why? Why does it say he's crowned with glory and honor? Because of what? He suffered to death. So here's what I think verse 8 and 9 saying, basically, basically that, that, that presently we don't see man, but, but here's what we do see. We see Jesus being as he was intended. And he says, the reason he's crowned with glory and honor is because he suffered. And then it says, by the grace of God, he suffered. Did you catch that? That it was by the grace of God that he might taste death for everyone. That it was God's grace that sent Jesus to die an excruciating death on the cross for us. Like, that was grace that, that sent him there. So... When 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 Jim in, at at Sunnybrook, we've been in this Yah, Yahweh series. In this past weekend, God is holy, and Jim said, "He is so different than other. He is he is otherly, like only God would think of this this form of grace um, as in, in, seen in Jesus' death." Okay, so we, we continue on. Verse 10. Um, in bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says... Okay, that's good. Um, 10 11. Okay, so he says, for it is fitting that he, who's the he now? Uh, see, th this is where, when, when you study the Bible and you and you print it out on somewhere, it's important to do this because there's a lot of hymns and thems and he's and and it's you got to really pay attention to figure out who's the he he's talking about. He's talking about man. He's talking about Jesus. Actually, I don't. I, I think he's talking about God, because in verse nine it says, "So by the grace of God he might taste death, for it's fitting that he." I believe that's God. And, and in fact, most of the scholars do. The he he's referring to is God. And here's why. He says, For he, for whom and by whom all things get, exist, the Creator, 
in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation, who's that? Jesus, and uh, um, perfect through suffering. So the reason I think it's the first he is God in 10 is because he's saying God made Jesus perfect through suffering. Um, the word founder is kind of an interesting word, or author, some of your versions. It, it can be translated as, as trailblazer or guide, but, but probably the most accurate use of this word during that time period was this idea of champion. Like he is the, he's the champion of our salvation. He is, and he was made perfect. He was made complete in or through suffering. The word suffering is an interesting word too. Um, a few times in, throughout the New Testament when it's used, it's used in reference to, it's actually used as the word passion. So you've seen the movie, The Passion of Christ. That's not, well, Jesus is really enthusiastic his last week. He had a lot of passion. No. Passion is suffering. This word linked together. The passion of Christ is the suffering of Christ. So the question is, why? Why would he, why would God make Jesus perfect through suffering? We'll find out later. Verse 11, he, um, now, now the he, okay, he just gets done mentioning the founder of their salvation. He says, for he who sanctifies, okay, I believe the he now is Jesus. I know it's confusing, but I believe it's the case. The he is Jesus. And he who sanctifies, that's Jesus. So sanctifies, in her version says, made holy. It's, that's literally what it means to be made holy, to be set apart for God. Um, those who, he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified, that's us. That's those who put their faith and trust in Jesus. That's those who are being tra- changed and transformed into his likeness. Okay. Um, he says, we all have one source. So Jesus and, and, and those who put their faith and trust in him have one source. Who's the one source? Nope. God. See, see, now he's switching. He, in fact, he uses the very, the very last word of this verse is what? Of verse 11. Brothers. Do you have brothers and sisters? Brothers. Okay. So, so now, the, now here's what he's doing. He's, he's showing that not only, chapter 1, um, Jesus is God. Chapter 2, verse 5 and on, Jesus was made human. And now he's made like a brother. He's made like one of us. Um, he says we have one source, that's God. We, we know that Jesus is God according to one, Hebrews 1, but here he's, again, the author's pointing to his incarnation, his, his leaving heaven and coming to earth. Um, can any, anyone think of a section of scripture that describes that? John. Okay, John 1, the beginning, birth of, of Christ, Matthew 1, Matthew 1 through 2, Luke 1 through 2. But also Philippians 2. You familiar with Philippians 2? That, that uh, he did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, be let go, essentially, making himself nothing, taking the nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. He died a death on the cross. That, that's, that's the incarnation. That's what, that's what this author, uh, the speaker, is, is referring to. So, another question. Why... 
was it important for the author to point out that Jesus and those who've put their faith and trust in him, humanity, or his people, have the, are from the same source. Why would that be important? We'll find out later. Um, another cliffhanger. So he calls us brothers, and, and this, this word brothers denotes a couple things. One, it denotes this relational aspect that we have with, with salvation. We're, we're a part of a family of God. But more importantly, he's, he's trying to point out that Jesus is taking our nature, that he is one of us. Okay? So, read, thir- uh, read 12 and 13. So he quotes two, sec- two, two sections of scripture. The first one is, is Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is, is probably, next to Isaiah 53, one of the most um, popular, one of the most uh, explicit, prophetic, Old Testament sections of scriptures that point to Jesus' crucifixion, his actual suffering on the cross. Written approximately a thousand years before Jesus, it, it describes almost in detail several events that happen on the cross while Jesus is there. It's, it's, a, it's like when you read Psalm 22 and, you, and then you read the, cruci- the crucifixion story, there's several things that are almost literally word for word. Um, in fact, Jesus quotes Psalm 22, verse 1. Anybody know what it says? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Interesting that Jesus would, on the cross, one of the seven things, he says seven different things, and that's one of them. Why he would say that? And I think it's for a couple reasons. One, not only was he in agony, not only was he carrying the sins of the world, not, not only was he experiencing separation temporarily due to sin he hadn't experienced before, but I also think he's, he's, he's calling himself, basically he's pointing to his divinity right then and there. I think he's, he's saying essentially, I'm Psalm 22. Like Psalm 22 is happening right now. This isn't the case anymore, but every Jewish man in that, in that <coughs> within earshot would have had Psalm 22 memorized. They, they had most of the Old Testament memorized by the time they were, I think, 14. And from 14 to 16, they memorized the Psalms and the Proverbs. But, but like the Torah, the first five books, memorized by the time they're nine, um, the rest of the his, history books and the, the prophets memorized by the time they're 14, and then 16 to, to 17 or 14 to 16 is when they have psalms and so every Jewish man would have had. So when when he says Psalm 22:1, they can't help but just go, oh, oh, like he, they're seeing it happen right in front of them. It's 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 pretty cool. Go back and read Psalm 22 when you get a chance. Um, so it offers Psalm 22 offers this rich background of, of Jesus suffering on the cross, and 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 a discussion of Jesus' incarnation, and then also his relation to us. And then Isaiah 8, also also seen as a messianic psalm, um, Paul quotes it in Romans. Uh, Peter quotes it in reference to the crucifixion. So both of these, um, both of these, not only not only reference Jesus' relation to us as brother, but also to his suffering 
and his death and his crucifixion. It's amazing. I mean, it, it, it's amazing. My mind has been blown this week discovering some of these things. Okay, read 14 through 16. So, the goal of Jesus' incarnation, two things. He points out here in 14 and 15. One, to destroy death and the devil. Can I get an amen? Amen. Okay. Uh, Come on, Scott. To, to destroy death and the devil. Okay, it's, 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 it's important. Um, how did he destroy death? How did he destroy death and the one who holds death, the power of death? By his death. Like, he destroys the very thing. That he, that he goes through. It is his death, it is the death of Jesus that destroys death, and it's his resurrection that points to the power of his death. Um, so, so, the only way, the only way the Son could accomplish what he needed to accomplish for us um, was to die for us. Okay? And the only way that he could die for us was to become one of us. The, the only way that, that our sins can be atoned for is by someone like us paying for, for our sins. And so Jesus had to become one of us in order to die for us. The second, the second thing that, he, uh, that, that becomes kind of the goal of Jesus' incarnation, his coming, is to deliver us from slavery. It says something interesting. In fact, in Psalm 8, it says that man was created originally to have to, for all things to be in subjection under him. What does it say in verse 15 about us? That we are subjected to slavery. Like the very thing that we are commanded to do is actually the opposite of that is happening. We are now subjected to slavery. And so Jesus comes as the second Adam. Okay, the first Adam introduced sin to the world, and so Romans 5 says, because Adam sinned, all have sinned. And Jesus is our second Adam, it says in Romans, that he is the one who comes to, to the ultimate human, <laughs> the only one who, who, who actually did what we were created to do. And he dies for us in our place. So, um, and, and frees us from slavery to death. So he conquers death and he conquers sin, the two greatest things that stand in the way of us spending eternity with God and having life in him. Verse 17 and 18. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Okay. Now, these, these two verses actually um, do a phenomenal job of summing up all that he's just said and, and then also introducing some, a, a major section of Hebrews. In fact, from pretty much from chapter 4 through chapter 10 is going to be, uh, is, is, he's introducing that here in these verses. Um, in, in chapter 4, 14 through 5, 3, if you look at your Bible, 
you might have a heading that says something like um, Jesus the Great High Priest, chapter 4, 14 through 5, 3. Um, there are eight common phrases and words used in chapter 2, 17 and 18, and 4, 14 through 5, 3. So, so a lot of what he's going to say there, says in our text today, he's going to say again in a couple weeks in chapter 4. Um, but so, so catch what he's saying, okay? Not only did Jesus have to come to be, have to become one of us to die for us, okay? But he had to also become our high priest to represent us and the sacrifice that paid for our sins, that atoned for our sins. The word in the ESV, I can't remember what, in 17, what does yours say? ESV says propitiation, what does yours say? No, um, to make a, to make atonement for the sins of the people. Is that what it says? Oh yeah. To make atonement for. Yeah, yeah. ESV says propitiation. Um, that's a big word. In fact, Drew's going to spend quite a bit of time unpacking this idea of how how did Jesus atone for our sins? How did he really pay for our sins? And um, so you'll you'll get into that. But but you got to catch this. So so he had to become one of us in order to die for us. And he also had to become our high, priest, our high priest to represent us and become our sacrifice to pay for us back. That's why he became human. So we're going to take a little break, a couple, couple minutes, and then Drew will get up and uh, hopefully tie some things together for us. All right. Scott pointed out in verse... 10 of your text, a very strange statement. The statement in verse 10 is this, that Jesus, that God made Jesus perfect through suffering. And that's a weird statement, okay? The question is, like, what does that look like? What does he mean by that? How is it that Jesus, as the spotless, sinless Son of God, what does he need to be made perfect for? What does the writer mean when he says that Jesus, who we believe never sinned, never did anything wrong, is perfect, was made perfect once he came down here? I want to try to answer that question tonight, but before I can do that, we need to tackle kind of another big issue that will lead us into that a little bit. And, and um, Scott mentioned this too. It's in verse 17, and this is a big um, topic that we talk about, and I would say a fairly controversial, um, there's a fairly controversial word that is thrown out in verse 17, um, and, and it's one that translators can't quite seem to agree on how they ought to translate it into English. The word in the Greek is haliskomai, all right? Haliskomai is the word, yeah, like Anthony knows. Um, the word in the Greek is haliskomai, and, and there's, there's kind of three or four sister words to it that get used in the New Testament, but not very often. It's only these kind of sister words, they have the same root word, only get used five, six times as far as I know in, in the New Testament. Here's how the ESV translates it. Um, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to, and this is the word, make propitiation for the sins of the people. 
okay, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Uh, the NIV translates it um, to make atonement for the sins of the people. The NLT translates it, New Living, offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. The message says um, that he would get rid of the people's sin. The Revised Standard Version, which was kind of the go-to up until the NIV came, other than kind of the new, if, if you didn't want to do the King James, then the Revised Standard was kind of the way to go um, for most people. The Revised Standard Version says to make expiation for the sins of the people. And, and truthfully, the debate is only between that first word and that last word that I mentioned. The first one in the, uh, in the ESV, to make propitiation. That's try the, the, the King James does actually, surprisingly, get this one right. Um, no, um, I'm spelling it wrong. My gosh. Okay, I can do this. I can't. Nobody, nobody talk to me while I'm doing this. Okay. Expiation. These are the two words that people will kind of walk through and... and and wrestle with and debate as to how this word, haliskomai, should be translated. All the other translations kind of shade one way or the other by the way they talk, or they sort of plead the fifth. <laughs> and, that's, and that's a little bit of what the NIV seems to do. Um, says that um, he was there to make atonement for the sins of the people. We're not going to say how he did it. We, you, you figure that out, okay? Um, that says that you can say whether he made it through propitiation or expiation, even though you, you could maybe argue that the idea of atonement leans a little bit this way. Um, but this is kind of the, the question. And so some of them kind of shade this way, some of them shade this way. But the debate is between these two words. Now, there's some of you who go in, it doesn't matter which one we choose because I don't know what either of them means. Um, and, and there's some of you who might be thinking, even if I know what it means, I don't know if it's that big a deal. And I want to tell you that I think it is important because your view of how we translate this verb shapes our view of the nature of God, shapes our view of how he saves us and what was necessary in order to save us. And that's why this is an important word. I don't know if I'm, I don't think I can say that this makes you, which one you land on depends on whether you're a Christian or not. Um, but, but I do believe that it's an important one. Let me explain to you the two of them. Propitiation, this is a term that refers to appeasing someone, namely in, in a situation like this, that would be God, to appeasing God and his wrath, to appeasing his anger. Uh, this word was mostly, as I said, we only have this word. Actually, this is the only time haliskomai, which is this verb form, is, is used. But the other sister words are five or six times in the New Testament. We have it a lot more in classical Greek, okay, in non-biblical Greek. Um, and, and in those, uh, in classical Greek, it was often used for this very statement, that in order to appease the gods, okay, Zeus or, or um, whichever, Aphrodite or whatever, to, to appease the pagan, to appease the gods of those times, then you would offer a sacrifice as a propitiation. You would propitiate them. You would, to, to 
when, when they get angry, when you've done something to upset them, which could happen fairly easily, and you might not exactly know what you did that, that ticked them off, all you know is things aren't working out for you. Things aren't working out for your country, and so what you would do is you would offer a propitiation to appease them, to, to cool them off, to get them kind of back on your side again. Um, so this is the, this is the, the word, r- truthfully, if we're following the classical Greek, this is probably the best translation of it. Um, this has the most support behind it by what we see. It was often, it, it would be translated to propitiation. But most scholars, I say most, many scholars um, for the last 60, 70 years have rejected this um, on theological terms. And that is that it does not seem like you can compare, it does not seem to square with what we know of the God of the Bible to, to compare him to those gods of uh, of Greek mythology, the pagan gods of worship, then can we really say that like God, the God that is love, is has so much wrath that he needs to be appeased? Can we really compare him to these fickle gods who might lose their temper at any moment? And what do I got to do to get you off my back? What do I got to do so that you're not angry with me anymore? What do I got to do to avoid, to appease your wrath? And there are a number of scholars who say, no, that's not the God of the Bible, and so this is the better translation over here. Expiation is what I get to. The, the term expiation is to remove or cover up something, namely that would be sin. So this is a little bit more focused towards him, and this is a little bit more focused towards it, sin. Um, to remove or cover up sin in this case is what the idea of expiation it's the idea of Jesus coming and him cleaning me and kind of or, or coming in and pushing the sin to the side or or covering it up and kind of hiding it so that I can then be forgiven um, this is um, what expiation means um, the view uh, I'm sorry if, if propitiation so if I kind of say this if propitiation is, is basically the idea of God's anger is is against me God's wrath is against me in my sin, and it is coming at me, and Jesus steps in and turns away that wrath. That's the idea of propitiation. Expiation is the idea of my sin has built a wall between me and God, and Jesus steps in and removes that wall so that I'm right with God again. Okay? Those are kind of the key ideas here. C.H. Dodd is the first, I don't know if he's the very first, he's the first major scholar back in like 1944 to propose that this is the better um, translation. He had studied a lot of Greek mythology and propitiation. He said, that's not describing the God of the Bible. And so he recommended that we go over to this idea of expiation. And a number have gone with him as, as he's kind of, uh, as he's explained it that way. And the main argument for this, again, is the God of wrath that this implies does not seem to match up with the God of love that we see in the New Testament. And I get the heart behind this, and I get um, the reasoning that would lead a person to this, and I want to spend the next few minutes telling you why I think they're wrong. Okay? Um, I believe, now listen, I'm not saying that I, I don't believe in expiation. Like I do believe that, that Jesus removes the wall of sin. I do believe that he takes sin away. I believe that that's accomplished, though, through propitiation, that that can't be accomplished without propitiation, okay? And that's, and that's important to recognize. People over who, who, who go with this translation aren't against this necessarily. They just think that this is necessary. People over here are against this. And they say this can't be because God doesn't seem to match up with this idea. Let me tell you why I think that propitiation is the right answer. 
Um, first of all, um, as I said, this word haliskomai in, used in the Greek is consistently used for the idea of appeasement or propitiation. So as we just look at the Greek, as we just look at the words, that seems to be what that is always kind of referencing for. And it's only in the last 60, 70 years that people have decided, ah, I think the New Testament uses it in a completely different way than everybody else. Okay? Which just doesn't seem to make sense to me. Second, you cannot read the Bible without coming to this conclusion that God is wrathful. That he has wrath towards sin. That he has anger towards sin and not just towards sin but towards sinful people it's all over the bible god's wrath is referenced in the old testament over 580 times so it's not just this kind of little idea that comes in every now and then um, it's referenced in passages like ezekiel here's 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 what ch dodd the guy who says we go expiation would say there, there's no ignoring the, this word wrath that shows up over and over again what he says is wrath is sort of like the it's the biblical way of talking about like the natural consequences of our sin so i sin and wrath is the disaster that follows kind of the con just the consequences that come with that um and, and, and it's almost like God isn't the one doing it. It's just kind of what happens when you sin is what he would say. But that, that doesn't seem to square very well with passages like Ezekiel 7, 8 through 9. Let me read this to you. This is God talking to Israel. I am about to pour out my wrath on you and spend my anger against you. I will judge you according to your conduct and repay you for all your detestable practices. I will not look on you with pity. I will not spare you. I will repay you for your conduct and for the detestable practices among you. Now before you say, man, that's mean. It sounds so harsh. Like, like bear in mind that this is, this is the people that God chose for himself. This is the people that out of everyone else in the world, for no reason other than he wanted to, other than he loved them, he rescued them from slavery and made them his own. This is the people that he declared to be his in a covenant. This is the people that he brought to a land that he set aside just for them. And he took them safely there. And he made all these promises to them. And they made all these promises to him. And over and over and over again, they went back on those promises. And over and over and over again, they rejected him. So, so before we start getting the idea, you have to recognize that words like this were written um, it would be something like six, seven hundred years after God rescues them. Six, seven hundred years of putting up with the way they treated him, with their rejection of him, with their consistent turning to other gods. And he says, listen, I'm, I'm through with this. I'm pouring out my wrath on you and justfully, rightfully so is what we ought to say if we're taking a biblical view of things. And it's not just the Old Testament that God has wrath in. The New Testament has it too. You have passages like Romans 1. The wrath of God is being revealed against the godlessness and wickedness of people. Ephesians 5 says God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. John 3.36 says that if someone rejects Jesus, God's wrath remains on them. It's all over the New Testament, too. We can't escape this idea that God is a wrathful God, another reason why I think propitiation fits. Third reason why I, I like this one is this. Expiation doesn't do justice to a God of justice. Okay? Expiation alone doesn't do justice to a God of justice. That is, if God is a just God, that means that he always gets it right. 
Okay, that means that he rewards righteousness and he always punishes sin. Like a judge that does not punish criminals for their crimes is considered unjust or unjust, right? Like that's, that's what it means to be a right, a justice of the peace, okay, or, or to be an actual judge is that you're, 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 um, that you're judging, that you're punishing sin appropriately. And God has to, if he is holy, if he is just, it means he has to punish sin. This is Romans 3, if you get a chance tonight. Romans 3, 21 through 26 is like um, this brilliant um, passage on, on uh, the gospel and the way Jesus saves us, the way God saves us. And this word propitiation is in it. We'll get to it in a little bit. But it says this, that God has to be just. And at the same time, he's got to figure out a way to be the justifier. And this is where this gets a little interesting. I mm, don't have time for that story. Okay. Um, so, so basically, the Greek seems to match up with this. All other uses of the word heliskomai goes to propitiation. We know in the Bible that God is a God of wrath, and so that seems to fit propitiation. We know that God needs to be just and that he always punishes sin, and so that fits propitiation. So then why is it that so many scholars keep choosing expiation? Why, why is it that so many of them have a problem with this idea and they can't handle it so much so that they go with this translation of the word whenever they see it or kind of avoid the whole idea altogether? I would tell you that I think it's this. I think that they've confused the pagan understanding of this with the biblical understanding. But I would actually agree with them that God's not like those fickle gods in Greek mythology, in the pagan religions of the past. That he's nothing like that. And the propitiation that is offered in the Bible is nothing like that. That it differs with it in three different areas. And I believe I got these from John Stott. It was a while ago. Um, but it, uh, it differs from them in the reason for the propitiation, or you could say the need. Um, it differs in the initiator of the propitiation. and in the nature of the propitiation. It differs in the need, the pagan view. This is why you needed propitiation according to the pagan religions of that day, because the gods were ill-tempered, moody, and easily offended. Because you didn't know what you might be doing that might tick them off. All you know is things aren't working out. All you know is it seems like they're against you. You don't even, sometimes maybe they're not even paying attention to you. And honestly, that's the best case scenario. Because then you don't got to worry about any of those things. You don't have to worry about stepping on their toes. You don't have to worry about getting them angered. But all you know is every now and then they somehow paid attention and things got bad because they weren't happy. And so you had to figure out something. The need was I ticked them off somehow, so I got to figure out something to make this right. So I offer some kind of sacrifice to them, to propitiation. The biblical view, why, what, what is the need for propitiation in the biblical view? God's holiness, and that is his holiness cannot be, or better said this way, sin cannot be in the presence of his holiness. It's like paper in the middle of a fire. All it does is destroy it. Okay? Sin can, there's never any question in the Bible as to what angers God. It is always, God is always, and, and, and I believe this. I don't think that God's wrath is like him losing his temper. That's the way we often picture it. Like God just kind of like, whatever you want to say, blows a gasket or, or needs to blow off. And so he just kind of 
jumps out and loses it and throws a tantrum. That's, that's not the way it seems to be described. Wrath, I believe, is this. God's settled opposition to the sin that is tearing his creation apart. That is, like you and I, he knows this. He made us in his image. He loves us. And we were made for something greater than that. And as a holy God, he deserves something greater than that. You know how, and this is why I don't think that God of wrath has to be opposite, has to be against God of love. Because if you've ever had someone you love deeply who's doing something that is destructive to their life and the people uh, that are around and the people that are involved in their lives, you know how angry you can get. In fact, the closer you are to that person and the more you love that person, the more angry you are, right? You hate watching them destroy themselves with that sin. And I think God hates the sin that destroys his creation and he hates the sin that is counter to all that he is and his nature. Um, number two difference between pagan propitiation and biblical is the initiator. In the pagan view, people initiated what the gods would not initiate. The gods, you messed up is what the gods say. I'm the one with all the power here. You do what you got to do to make it right. So the pagan view, people initiate what the gods would not. In the biblical view, God initiated what we could not. Okay? In the biblical view, we can't, even if we wanted to, couldn't make things right. And so God is the one who starts this process, who initiates this. Romans 3.25, I told you we get there, says that God presented Jesus as a propitiation. I don't think, I don't, I don't know, I'm, I'm not a Greek expert or I've studied a lot of it. I don't think that phrase is ever uttered in the other classical Greeks, that the gods presented something as a propitiation. That's only spoken about Yahweh, as far as I know. That he presented Jesus as a propitiation for our sins. And that leads us to this last point, the nature of the sacrifice. In the pagan understanding of propitiation, um, people offered whatever they had to the gods to make them happy again to make them not angry so so I took the gods off so I go and I find a cow and I offer as a sacrifice so I go and I find some of my um, grain some of my harvest and I offer that as a sacrifice I go and I offer a goat and I offer that as a sacrifice or even in some situations I go in you know old old um, like back in the day I go and I offer like my own child as a sacrifice whatever it might take so that God is a, the, the gods are appeased and so they're with me in the biblical view people offered what they had to the gods in the biblical view you, God offered himself. And that's where things are radically different. God offers himself in that he offers Jesus, his own son. There's some people who hate that idea. This is the term that actually people use. Actual people who study the Bible, scholars have used this term about propitiation, cosmic child abuse, that God would get so angry at us that he would take it out on his son Jesus that he would kill him, abuse him to kind of whatever, you know, get to, to get his, his wrath appeased. And, and, and when people say that, I don't know, maybe I, I, I don't get it actually. <laughs> Here's why I don't get it, because they're forgetting a really, like a key part of biblical Christian doctrine. And that is that Jesus is himself God. Right? So it's not just the father beating the son. It's, it's, it's Jesus who we've offended. It's Jesus whose wrath we need to be careful of. It's Jesus who is angry with us because he is the father. And it's Jesus who comes in and steps in our place for our sins. It's Jesus who does this. This is the way Stott says it. I can't remember. Maybe Jim quoted this a few weeks ago. God himself gave himself to save us from himself. 
That's propitiation. And that's the gospel. And I love that idea. God himself gave himself to save us from himself. Now, this brings us back to the original question. What does it mean that Jesus was made perfect? Because this is an interesting thing. Who is it that Jesus dies for? Let me rephrase that. Which species does Jesus die for? Does he die for frogs? Does he die for lions? Does he die for, and this is actually a big issue, does he die for angels? What happens when angels sin? <laughs> like hell and punishment is their only option. Okay? He doesn't die for it. He even says it wasn't, it's not angels he helps. It's the descendants of Abraham. That's what he says in here. And, and, and this becomes really key because angels could never pay for human sin. And lions could never pay for human sin. And goats, now this is interesting because remember the Old Testament sacrificial system, goats could never pay for human sin. So we're going to have to address that later. And, he was, and get this, the gods or the son of God could never pay for human sin. Only a human can pay for a human sin. And that's why the author of Hebrews says this about Jesus, that he is made perfect by coming in his suffering. It's not that he's saying that he went from sinful to sinless. That's not the kind of perfect he's talking about. He means perfect in the sense that Jesus became exactly what we needed. That Jesus came and lived the human life that you and I were supposed to live so that he could die the human death that we were supposed to die so that he could make us right with the God whose wrath we were under. So that he could make us right with himself. This is 2 Corinthians 5, that he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And that, according to the writer of Hebrews, is perfect. I love that idea. I should stop talking. Um, here's what I want to do. I, I, I just want to spend um, a couple minutes to kind of just reflect on this huge truth. Um, at, at what great cost Jesus humbles himself to take on human nature for the sake of becoming our faithful and merciful high priest for the sake of offering the, offering the only kind of sacrifice that could make us right with God. Um, that, that God loved us that much to initiate all this and to give up himself. And, and I just want to give you a minute or two to dwell on that. And then we're going to spend a few minutes dwelling on that um, as a group singing about the goodness of that together. So take a minute or two. Um, pray. Listen, sit in silence, whatever it is you feel led to do right now, and then we'll sing.